and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, the meaning of the locust. We'll begin by looking at the Old Testament book of Joel. The prophet warns the ancient nation of Israel right before she went into a lengthy captivity. Indeed, there are spiritual lessons for us in this very short Bible book. Today we'll see God's wake-up calls, which were given to the elders, to all of the inhabitants of the land, to the drunkards, and lastly to the priests. Another one of Pastor Elliot's sermons originally presented to his church in Pennsylvania. And now, with his message for today, is our pastor, Robert Elliot. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look to his word together. Gracious God, we thank and praise you that you are transcendent and over time, that everything in time is equally vivid to you because you created time. Things past, things present, and things future are equally vivid and real to you. You know the beginning from the end and everything in between. And Lord, in your transcendency, we also marvel at your imminency, that you are near as our breath, residing within the blood-brought child of God by your spirit, and how grateful we are for your nearness as we have particularly acknowledged the incarnation this Christmas season, that God came and pitched his tent amongst us, and we beheld his glory as glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight now as we look to the prophet Joel and as we see together that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Joel. If you need to use your table of contents, I always say that's why they put a table of contents in your Bibles. Just feel free to refer to where the prophet Joel is found. He's found about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament, and um, he will be the, his writings will be the subject of our study in the future for some weeks. The message tonight is entitled, The Meaning of the Locusts. And I think if we're honest and we've lived with Christ long enough to know ourselves to any degree, we know that sometimes God's very own people need to wake up and smell the coffee. I think it is so in our day, and I know it was so in ancient Judah's day when the prophet Joel was commissioned to speak and to preach to them. Around 835 BC, about eight and a half centuries before Christ's birth, there was a prophet from God, his name was Joel. He was sent to the nation of Israel to warn the nation of God's judgment both on them and God's judgment on the surrounding Gentile nations who were their neighbors. We don't really know a lot from the Bible about this man named Joel, but it would seem as though he was not a priest. From his inspired writing, it would seem that Joel was familiar with agricultural life. Maybe he was a farmer. Right out of the gate in his book, he points out a drought and a subsequent epic invasion of crop-eating locusts. And he presents the drought and the locust infestation as a spiritual illustration to wake up the Israelites who were spiritually slumbering. 
Verses 1 to 13 of chapter 1 are our focus this evening. And I'd like you to follow in your Bibles as I read Joel chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined and the new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate and palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. It is noteworthy that when the Lord cried out to a spiritually sleepy nation to wake up and to smell the coffee, he had his prophet Joel yell to certain people and in a certain order. First, the wake-up call went to the elders. That is seen in the first part of verse 2. The elders back then were the civic religious leaders who were supposed to be exemplary in their lifestyles. That was the first wake-up call was to the elders. The second wake-up call went to all the inhabitants of the land. You can see that in verse 2b. These all of the inhabitants of the land, these folks were the average garden variety Jews who believed in Yahweh God. These folks were the followers, they were not the leaders, and these folks were in covenant relationship with the true God by virtue of their Jewishness. None of these citizens were atheists. The first wake-up call to review was to the elders, the civic religious leaders. The second wake-up call went to all the inhabitants of the land. These were the average garden variety Jewish believers. The third wake-up call went to the drunkards. There were drunkards in the community, and according to verse 5, God had his prophet Joel call to them to wake up. They were believers, 
who were not allowing themselves to be controlled by God. Instead, they were letting themselves be controlled by booze. These were those who were addicted. They were not just in a spiritual stupor. They were in a mental, physical stupor. And when you combine a spiritual stupor with a mental and a physical stupor due to alcohol controlling you, it is a very bad combination. And the fact is that alcohol and mind-altering substances are still not friends of sanctification for Christians. The abuse of prescription drugs, the drinking of alcohol, not in moderation, are not friends of being set apart for God's possession and use as a redeemed child of God. They are, in fact, slippery slopes that go downhill fast, downhill fast into compounded sin and personal and family misery. So the first wake-up call went to the elders, the civic religious leaders. The second wake-up call went to all the inhabitants of the land, the garden variety average following Jewish person. The third wake-up call went to the drunkards. And the fourth wake-up call went to the priests, verse 13. See it there in verse 13? Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Yes, the fourth wake-up call went to the priests. The priests, of course, were the religious go-betweens. They ministered in mediation between the Lord himself and the Lord's covenant people. These men were Jewish priests ordained and set apart and privileged to offer the laws prescribed animal and non-animal sacrifices on behalf of the people. They offered these sacrifices in prescription to the law on the altars of the temple. And accordingly, these priests were to have clean hands and pure hearts. God expected that. It was only reasonable that these priests would have clean hands and pure hearts. So you say, Pastor Rob, what does this mean to me today? I'm not Jewish. I think most of us are not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I don't have a temple. I live in 21st century America. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning, this is Pastor Nicholas, and if you remember last time we talked about, again, as we talk about Jesus and stuff, we talked about follow me, but leave your stuff behind. And today we're going to continue talking about that same concept of Jesus and stuff. And today we're going to talk about the parable of the rich fool. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, it says this, Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said, Friend, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. In verse 16, then he told a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store up all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is. The one who stores up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. You see, Jesus is, is very clear, and, and we need to understand something about Scripture. 
Jesus understood that money and possessions would be a, a serious thing for us because he talks about it so much in scripture because he understands how easy it is for us to rely on possessions, how easy to rely on what we have. And as we look around and we see people who don't have as much as us and are less fortunate than us, we think that we're better than them. But as we see in Jesus Christ, it is completely different. Here it is in this parable that Jesus is talking and he's talking to a crowd. He is telling them that this basically is saying, as the rich man is saying, you know what? I keep getting more. I keep getting more. I get more, more, more. And I'm going to knock down this building and, and build another building and bigger building. And, you know, can't, you know, even think about how I'm going to store all these possessions instead of looking at maybe giving some away to people. You see, I think that what happens sometimes in our lives is that we consider and, and, and we, we, have, we are hoarders in, in a way. We consider and we keep on getting more stuff and we say, oh, I need a bigger TV. Oh, that one's not big enough. Let me get a bigger TV and a bigger one. And, you know, we end up having the big TV and we're still not satisfied. You see, as we consider this passage and we consider what's going on here, Jesus, again, it's going to attack them exactly where it hurts again. And this is what Jesus does to us. He, he attacks the areas of our lives that we need to be chiseled out and we need to, to be more like him. And in this case, as we consider the rich fool, again, all he worried about was what he could store up for many years. And we need to make it very clear that we don't know what, what tomorrow or even the next minute is planned for our lives. We don't know if it's even, it's not promised to us. So we can store up all these things on this earth, but yet if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. And that's why Jesus makes it very clear at the end of this parable. He says, that's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, our riches on earth is not about how much money I have in my bank account or, or what I have, but it's how rich we are with God. What is our relationship with God? That's what matters. And I think that too many times in our lives, as we look at the TV and even in the church and we see preachers on TV talking about wealth and we talk about prosperity and we talk about all these things, it's completely opposite of what Jesus talks about. Jesus is talking about that we should be rich in mercy. We should be rich in all these things. We should be rich in our relationship with him, not rich in possessions. And I think that people sometimes think that if I'm not rich, then what do I have to give Christ? Well, you have your life to give to him. You have everything to give to him, to be used by him. And I think that we need to understand that those of us who may not have the money or possessions that some other people have, it's so, it's so easy for us to understand that why possessions get in the way. Because those people with possessions and who have money, they feel no need for God. And not all people, because we have a lot of rich people who are involved in churches and um, organizations who help the church. And God has given them money to help people in need. But I think so many times we have those people who are just like the, in this parable, the rich fool, who just store up all the treasures for themselves instead of looking to help those in need. So I think for us, as we consider this passage, as we consider you know, just talking again and continue this whole thing about Jesus and stuff, we need to consider that less is more. Less is more because when we have less and we consider it more in Christ, that is what Christ wants from us. He wants all of us. You see, no matter how much stuff we have or want, it doesn't add any real meaning to our lives. We could have everything in life, but it doesn't add anything to our lives. The only thing that adds to our life is a relationship with Christ. And I think too many times, again, as we consider our lives, and, you know, you consider in your home. You know, for, for a lot of us, again, as we collect things over the years, we always say, you know what? 
I don't want to throw this away because I'm going to use it, you know, in a couple of weeks or a couple of years. And we end up cleaning out again, and we notice that same thing was there, but we never use, and we keep it on the side, and we say, I'm going to, no. That's not what God wants us to do. Again, we need to make sure that every day of our lives counts for him. We need to make sure that as we consider this rich fool, that we don't become that way, that we don't just look on ourselves and look at our possession, look at the clothes we wear and think, oh, I have it together because I have the name brand clothes. But the only thing that matters is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters is what are, what are we doing with it? As again, verse 21 says, that's how it is with one who sort of treasure for himself as not rich toward God. So again, I challenge you, where are you storing up your treasures? Are you storing it in your basement? Are you storing it in your room? Are you storing it wherever it is, in your car, whatever it is, are you storing treasure here on this earth? Or are you worried about what you are storing in heaven with Jesus Christ? Because as we consider our storing with God, we know that's eternal. We know that 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 will never fail. As we consider, even in today's society, we put money in the bank, banks can close, banks can file for bankruptcy, and, and, you know, money can go missing. But when we consider God's bank, it's there eternally. It's forever. We don't have to worry about whether or not there was fraud on our account because God is keeping a record of what we are doing for him. And at the end of the day, when we stand before God, each one of us is going to answer for what we have done. And we need to make sure that we are storing up our treasures in heaven with him because we don't have to worry again about no one else getting in the way of that, coming in and stealing it. But we know that God is the best record keeper and he knows everything about us and he wants to use us to bring honor and glory to him. And now, today's ministry spotlight. Well, this morning I have a personal friend and certainly a friend of our listening audience uh, in the studio to tell us about an exciting project, and that's uh, Gregory Sweeting. Hello, brother. Hi, Pastor. Good to be here. It's excellent to have you, and you have been uh, busy doing something since you retired from this broadcast. I'm sure you've had more than one project, but we want to talk about one in particular. What have you been doing? Well, I've been writing a book, which is now printed and available, but we'll talk about that. Excellent, excellent. Well, what is the title of your book? The title of the book is The Cross and the Emperor. The Cross and the Emperor. And what is it about? What's the story? Well, the story is, I guess it, it formulated uh, a long period of, of months and maybe even years as I thought, how can I share my Christian faith with a wider audience? And uh, I love Wales. My wife is from Wales, and we go back often. She still calls it home. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I've grown familiar with the Welsh and the Welsh countryside. And, and I found also the Roman influence is very strong in the UK. Mm -hmm. Wherever you go, you find digs and archaeological places, uh, restored places, and even some of their main roads took their origin from the old Roman roads when, when Britain was conquered and occupied by the Roman Empire. So putting all that together, I said, how did Christianity actually get to the Welsh? And my research has led me to understand that no one really knows for sure, but it was probably through the Roman soldiers and possibly some merchants who had been converted and came over to sell their wares in the UK, which was then under Roman occupation. 
How interesting. So when you began to make those archaeological observations and observations about uh, the impact of Rome on, on the old times of Wales, what did you start to do to birth a book? Well, it really encouraged me a lot because, uh, you know, I tend to, to kind of pause there. Like when I used to do echoes, once you get started, it flows. Uh-huh. And so I said, I need to perhaps tell a story. So it became an historical novel. Mm-hmm. Historical in the sense that there are there are truths there, the uh, the mythology, the antique stories that come out of Britain. As a matter of fact, the hero in the book, uh, a guy call, I call Caradog Apbran, is a Welsh warrior, and he is taken from a real person by a similar name who fought against the Romans back in that era, and so I'm saying let me let me use him as the means to take the gospel into the UK, and well, actually into Wales. I've always heard you quick to say that this is a possible way yes. that this could hap- have yes. happened. As I say, nobody knows for sure. Right. So what I did was I used some of the figures from the New Testament, real people who interacted with the crucifixion, and the Roman centurion who oversaw the crucifixion of the Lord, I've used him to bring the gospel to Wales. How exciting, and I'm sure that you've been able to see your book sell in Wales some and here as well? Well, usually uh, from Amazon at this point. uh, I've had it at Logos, and uh, some have been sold at Logos, and I've been told by several people that they actually bought one from Amazon and had it delivered to them. As a matter of fact, yesterday somebody said, where is the next installment? I've finished the first one. Wow. I want the next one. Oh, that's encouraging. (laughs) So is there an answer to that person's question? Well, yes. I think I'm I'm becoming more and more inclined to do number two. It was originally thought I was going to do a trilogy. Uh, Yes. But I found out how much it costs to (laughs) print these books. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, But I think I will do number two, which carries it from the point where I left off in this book number one. Well, we'll look forward to that. How long did book number one take to write? Several years. Several years. Yes. As I say, a little bit of fits and stops here and there. <laughs> but once I got almost to the end, uh, I, I finished it with Rita's encouragement. Great. Uh, what would you say is something you've learned in the process about, let's say, about the Lord and, and about you, you yourself? Well, it was exciting to me as I as I thought through the theme and how did the the gospel get from Palestine mm-hmm. to Wales mm-hmm. with the Roman influence, which it's a thoroughly interesting and exciting um, research yes. to, to learn about uh, the Roman Empire and how Caesar actually was the one that first invaded the UK. Mm-hmm. He got tired and went back and it was a hundred years later before Rome actually came and occupied the UK. Mm-hmm. But all of that was very interesting and trying to think how would these people react to a, a god whom they, they actually didn't know by name, mm-hmm. who, who was crucified Right. In, a, in another Roman province, right. hundreds and hundreds of miles away, when they had their own god, mm. their own god of the forest that they worshipped for generations. So how, how, could, how could they suddenly drop him and accept this new god that, that this person is telling them about? It has to be a Holy Spirit uh, 
intervention for them as as it is for any of us. And I've thrown in a little bit of the supernatural mm-hmm. because um, I, I wanted to make sure that people understood that there is a very real presence of evil. Mm-hmm. And Satan wanted to prevent the gospel from being broadcast throughout this this new territory of of Wales under the Romans. I'm sure that's true, and we're so grateful that back then, as is still today, he's a defeated foe, but he certainly tries to uh, mix and mess things up. You're right. Certainly does. Yeah. Well, is there anything else? We'd be pleased to let you share anything else you might have on your mind about the book. Well, I think I think I'd like I'd like people who maybe have not yet made a commitment Mm -hmm. to read this book Mm -hmm. because I actually wrote with that kind of person in mind, Mm -hmm. a person who is interested in history, is interested in a story. Mm -hmm. And so I've combined all of this with a person in mind who needs to know the Lord. And through this book, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that he'll be introduced to the real God of the universe, the one who loved everyone enough to send his son to die. And at that death, the Roman centurion that I've used in my story takes that wonderful news of salvation and sails across, attacked by pirates, Mm. but sailed across in a Roman warship to get to the UK, to Wales, to where he could tell those people they need the Lord. And so I'm hoping that the person who reads the book, who is not yet a Christian, will also sense his or her need of that same Lord. Yes, and that uh, they as a reader, God is bringing to them as a reader that gospel, the good news that Jesus has died and paid for their sins and risen from the dead. That's fantastic. And told in a a story. Told in a story. With the usual, you know, this this girlfriends and and, and warriors and the magician um, who tries to prevent the gospel. It's a good read. Our <laughs> people so. are going to enjoy it. And uh, thank you so yeah. much for uh, coming into the studio this morning to share that with us. And I'm so pleased that our listeners can, many listeners know your voice very well. And uh, they're glad to hear your voice again and to know what God is doing through you. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this project. And uh, I'll, I'll make sure that uh, I think there's some in the church office as well. Good. But uh, logos and uh, the the bookcase will have will have the books available. Yes, and if a person wanted to buy them on Amazon, just search the Cross and the Emperor. The Cross and the Emperor. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.